Today we'll be looking in James chapter 1, and this wonderful little letter was, of course, if you look in James 1 verse 1, you'll see it was written by a man named James, that's whom the Holy Spirit used, and he just describes himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, they've been dispersed as a result of of the persecution, uh, not just from uh, the Roman Empire and from Caesar, but there's even persecution from within Israel itself. The religious leaders of Israel, of course, didn't like Jesus. They had crucified him, and they didn't like his followers. And so true believers were being persecuted. James is writing to help them. In fact, the entire book, I'll remind you, is all about spiritual maturity. What does it look like? How does a, a mature Christian talk and act and think? Well, read the book of James. And so James' readers were living in tough times here, as it says, in this dispersion. They were Jewish Christians being persecuted for their faith. Now, persecution posed many problems for these early Christians, and one of the problems might be somewhat surprising to you, and it certainly is to me, persecution constituted uh, for many a temptation to sin. And that's why, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, we have this this wonderful passage we're going to look at. And you say, well, how were they tempted to sin? In what way? Well, first, many Christians were inclined to reply in kind and and maybe say something like, well, hey, if, if these people hurt me, I'm going to hurt back. If they hurt me, I'm going to hurt back. We might call this the don't get mad but get even temptation. Uh, Some have even called it, hey, I'm not going to get even. I'm going to get ahead. (laughs) Right? What they give to me, I'm going to give back in worse kind. So temptation sprang for persecution in other ways, uh, namely the the, uh, the inclination, I should say, to use persecution as a justification for my sin, for their sin. In other words, some of those who were suffering here for their Christianity were reasoning and saying things like, well, hey, my life is difficult. In fact, my life is so difficult that I'm entitled to, to, to do whatever I can to make my life more pleasing, more pleasurable, more comfortable. So people have often allowed their difficulties to give them a sense of entitlement. You might feel that way in, in maybe small ways. For example, you, maybe you had a, a bad day at work or whatever, just some bad day. And a lot of people think the answer is chocolate. So I'm going to go get some chocolate because I've had a bad day or, or whatever. You know, it, it, That's just a minor pleasure, I know. But it, it, it's 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 kind of inherent in us we got to go find something pleasurable we think we're entitled to it and people have often allowed their difficulties to give them a sense of entitlement and some of them have even allowed themselves like like these people have allowed themselves to conclude that god is the source of my temptations james had addressed their trials and so the, the reasoning can go something like this, just so you understand. We've already addressed the trials in verses 2 through 12, but, but look at the screen. This is bad reasoning, by the way, but, but James is addressing this. He said, God sent the trials. The trials have caused me to be tempted, therefore God has tempted me to sin. That's the 
conclusion of, of the argument. And so James is addressing that, that bad reasoning. And in the verses we're going to look at today, James is moving from the trials to temptation. Uh, you and I, just like the, the readers of James here, can be tempted when God brings trials in our life, we can, we can be tempted as a result of that. And so he's clearing God of wrongdoing, and he's, what he's doing here is he's actually putting the guilt, the, the accusation on the true culprits. And so in, the, in those first 12 verses of James, we saw that a, a mature Christian is patient in trials. Trials are a good thing, in fact. They're, they're working something in us. God desires to give us trials so that we would be complete. We would become spiritually mature. We would grow up. Often trials become temptations. And so if we're not careful, though, the, the testings that happen to us on the outside can actually become temptations on the inside. In other words, when our circumstances are difficult, we can find ourselves complaining against God, grumbling, whinging, whining. We can even question God's love. We can question God's presence. We can question God's goodness and greatness, His power, and and even sometimes we resist His will. And so this opportunity is a temptation. By the way, God doesn't want us to yield to the temptation. Yet neither will he spare us from experiencing trials. And so if we are to mature, then we have to face those trials. We have to face the the examinations and the tests that God brings. We're going to face temptations, but we can overcome those temptations. You say, well, by the way, what is a temptation? We're going to talk about it, but let me uh, describe it this way for you. It's on the screen. A temptation is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. It's out of the will of God. Uh, For example, in case you're not getting the definition, uh, is it good or bad to pass an exam? Of course that's a good thing to pass an examination or a test. That's a good thing. But it is possible to accomplish that outside the will of God. You can cheat. Cheating is clearly sinful. It is a sin. And you can pass an exam by cheating, by lying, by stealing. And so the temptation to cheat is an opportunity to accomplish a good thing, but in the wrong way. It's outside of God's will for your life. Cheating is a bad way to accomplish that good thing. So James is addressing how we can be spiritually mature as we go through trials, we experience temptations how do we handle these temptations well look what james says starting in verse 13 look at verse 13 james 1 verse 13 these are the words of the living god and he says let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. My first question for you as we look at this passage is this. What is the source of temptation? So we are tempted, uh, can be tempted as a result of these trials. But what's the source? Well, notice the first thing that James says here in verse 13 is that God is not the source of your temptation. God cannot be tempted. That phrase means that God is untemptable. (laughs) He is untemptable. He is without the capacity for temptation. No one, including you, Satan, or anybody else, can tempt God. He has no sin nature, like you and I do. So, it's the same as being invincible, if you will, to the assaults of evil. God is totally invincible. Totally invincible to to evil. In other words, the nature of evil makes it inherently foreign to God. He just lives and dwells in a totally different realm. The reality is God and evil exist in two distinct realms, and and those two realms never meet. He has no vulnerability to evil. He's utterly impregnable to the onslaught of sin and, and evil. He's aware of evil, but he's untouched by the evil, by sin. Uh, someone has likened it to to sun, if you'll see in the picture, someone's likened uh, God to kind of like sun shining on rubbish, right? The sun hits uh, and shines on the rubbish, right? Imagine, uh, but the sunbeam is untouched by the rubbish. You, you can see the effect. You can see the sunbeams and, and the light shining on it, but it's untouched by the rubbish. So, that's the way God is. He is not the source of temptation. So you, you might ask, well, then what is the source of temptation? Well, look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Because it says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So the answer to the question of what is the source of temptation is you. 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 Uh, the, the source of temptation, in other words, comes from within us. It's from within a person. It's from your own evil desires. The, the idea is there, it's, it's your lust. That lust just means a strong desire. It's your inner cravings. So, you cannot honestly say that something else made you do it. Right? I used to jokingly say all the time that Satan made me do it. Satan made me sin, you know, so if I got caught in sin, I, I needed someone to blame, just like Adam and Eve trying to conveniently, in the Garden of Eden, finding someone to blame, right? God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden after they had sinned. What, is, what, is, uh, what does Eve do? Oh, well, it's, it's that serpent over there that made me sin. Adam's blaming his wife, ultimately blaming God for his sin. And we've been doing that ever since then. We want a blame shift. Satan made me do it. Or, well, it's, it's the world. It's the advertisers. You know, I couldn't help myself. That chocolate bar was irresistible. It was the advertising. Or whatever, okay? No. You, you choose. It's your, God says it's your desire 
that's giving in to the temptation. James says it this way in a couple chapters later in chapter 4. He says, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, rhetorical question, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So what's the cause of sin? There's several sins mentioned there. Things like murder and covetousness. Why do you covet things? Why do you murder? It's your desire. You desire to do that. So the the source of temptation is not God. It is from within you. Let's, Let's get that straight. Okay? Good biblical theology here. So then... James proceeds to give us the steps in temptation here. What are the steps in temptation? Step number one is found in verse 14, and we see it is desire. That's where it all starts. Each person's tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire, his own lust. So in biblical language here, by the way, desires are not necessarily something that's intrinsically evil. But what it does mean, it's a strong longing, a strong craving. For example, let, let me illustrate this way, guys. All right, and then I'll give you ladies an example. This might help. Uh, for example, a woman's beauty is something God-given. It's intrinsically good and innocent. God is the one who's done that. We're all made in His image. He, he creates us uniquely the way we are. And so beauty by itself is not going to force someone to sin. Although I've heard guys say this, they they, they blame their lust or their sin on, wow, well, hey God, you made that woman too beautiful. Oh, really? Uh, we ought to be capable of noticing God's handiwork and, and look at it with perfect innocence. It is possible to have a detached admiration of of one of God's creatures that he has made. Kind of like, uh, I liken it this way. Any of you ever walked into an art gallery? Sometimes you might walk into an art gallery and you might admire some of the the paintings. I mean, God has has made us in his image. God was a creating God. We're creative people and people can do amazing creative things. And you can go in there and admire the beautiful paintings. So... Nothing wrong with that. You can do that in perfect innocence. However, many men have difficulty, though. And there's nothing wrong with desiring beauty, by the way. But if the desire for beauty ends up becoming lust, like it was for King David as he was up on his rooftop, he saw Bathsheba, and then he starts gazing, and he starts the, 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 what he saw ended up becoming sin. Uh, the, the desire for beauty can become lust, and then we have sinned against God. So where does the fault lie? Well, the fault didn't lie with Bathsheba being beautiful. The fault lied with David's, the, the desire ended up becoming lust. And so ladies, it's not your fault that God made you beautiful. And neither can we blame God for that. So the fault then lies with the man who lusts after a woman, right? Hopefully that illustration helps. So ladies, I've got one for you. Here's an example for you. Hopefully we'll hit home. Did you know that friendship is not intrinsically evil? Friendship is is God-given, okay? But 
But some ladies, particularly teenage girls, uh, can, can worship for themselves by, through their friendships. Uh, friendship is good, it's, it's innocent. However, if your desire for friendship actually will cause you to disobey your parents or disobey human government laws, disobey the Bible, then guess what? You have now entered into sin. That, that desire for something that is intrinsically good and innocent now becomes sin when you break God's law. So what was good has now become bad. Now, while we're all vulnerable, by the way, to the sins that Scripture forbids, each person has their own set, I'll say. You have your own set of special desires. Each one of us desire different things. I'll use chocolate as an example again, okay? Did you know that not everybody likes chocolate? That might be a shock to some of you who think that chocolate is the answer to every question. You've probably seen that sign, right? Chocolate, you don't care what the question is, the answer is chocolate, right? So, so people who have this really strong desire for chocolate don't understand other people who just don't like it and never eat it. Well, God made them that way. That's fine, right? We're not all the same, okay? Some people have different desires for different things. We're not all, you know, coming out of the press exactly the same. So what is a temptation to one person can actually not even appeal to somebody else. You know, I'll give you another example. For me, alcohol just doesn't interest me, never has, and hopefully never will. I've never been tempted to drink alcohol. Never. Whereas some other person, of course, they have this really strong desire. They want it all the time. They're different from me, but my sins are different from that person. You know, the strong desire that I have for, for some kind of a sin may not even affect that person who has the strong desire for alcohol. We're different. You know, there's legalists, there's libertines. So for a religious legalist, it's going to be, life's going to look different. Their desires will look different for someone who's a libertine. So, you know, a religious legalist might look someone like a Pharisee. Jesus addressed them in, in the Gospels. But libertine's one who, thinks they can just go and do whatever they want, and grace covers everything. And so one is drawn to secret sin. That's the Pharisee. The, the libertine is more drawn to open sin. They think they can just go do whatever they want. So it's, it's kind of like one type of bait or lure is going to work well on a fish that may not work on another kind of fish. If you've gone fishing... You know, there's all kinds of different baits and lures. So, you know, Kawai might be drawn to, well, I know Kawai like Bonito, whereas, uh, you know, some other kind of fish may not like Bonito. Or, uh, you know, they might like pilchard. One fish might like a pilchard, and another fish wants to go and eat squid, right? They're enticed and lured by different things. I, and so your own lusts are, are that way. Your own lust should be what concerns you. So the first step in temptation is the desire. Now look again at verse 14. We see the second step then is deception. It's deception. Because each person, verse 14 says, is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. 
So, no temptation appears as temptation. (laughs) It always seems more alluring than what it really is. And James is using two illustrations from the world of sports here to prove that very point. To, To prove that temptation is alluring. It's deceptive. Did you see the two words? At least in the ESV, it's, it has the word lured. Lured is the idea of baiting a trap, kind of like this. Any of you ever put out mouse traps or rat traps? All right, you probably don't put out a big sign saying, hey, come, get free cheese, right? You don't have to do that. Why do you put cheese or a peanut butter or whatever else you want on the mouse trap? Why do you do that? Because most mice are smart enough to know you don't go and stick your stick your nose on the trap if nothing is there to lure you to it. Right? So, so you put the cheese on there to lure the mouse or the rat so that when he bites it, it the trap will kill him or her. Right? So James is using that word lured here. The idea of baiting a trap. You're deceiving the animal so that you can get him. James uses another word, entice. The idea with the word entice is, this one is baiting a hook. Right? When you go fishing, do, do you just throw an empty hook out there? Hoping that some stupid fish is going to come and bite an empty hook? No. You, you, lose, you use a lure, a bait. In this case, it's part of a fish. So a fish is going to come and eat the fish thinking he's eating the fish, hoping the fisherman's hoping that as the fish eats the fish, he also bites the hook. Right? He's being enticed to that hook. And so James is using this as an illustration of temptation. All these are examples of deception. And so a hunter, man, a hunter or a fisherman, they use bait to attract and catch their prey. When I used to live in the States, we used to put out food for the deer. Now, why would we do that? Because I knew when it came hunting season, I wanted some deer to come close to me so that I could shoot them with my bow and arrow. Well, with the arrow, right? So so with when, you, when you're hunting with bow and arrow, you got to get a deer close because you can't shoot far like with a rifle. And so we, we'd put out food sometimes even months ahead of time. We get the deer coming in, used to eating that food. We entice them and lure them, and when they, and then when hunting season comes around, guess what? Here I am. I'm going to put some meat on the table. That's what hunters do. Fishermen entice; they they lure them in by deceiving. Now, why is that? Why why do you have to do that? Because no animal is going to deliberately go into a trap. No fish is going to knowingly come along and bite a bare hook. The idea is then to hide the trap, hide the hook. It's called deception. And that's what temptation is seeking to do to you. By the way, temptation always carries with it some bait that appeals to our natural desires. And there's many examples we could look at in Scripture of this. Uh, let me just give you a couple. Okay, Number one. You ever read about Lot in the book of Genesis? Lot, remember, was related to Abraham. Abraham says, okay, there, uh, there's, a, there's a problem, conflict uh, in the family, if you will. 
So Abraham says, okay, Lot, uh, you're going to go that way or this way? You, you pick. I'm going to go the opposite direction of you so that we don't have this conflict. Well, what did Lot do? Lot, Lot looks towards Sodom. Lot sees the well-watered plains around Sodom, and he thinks, wow, that looks much better down there for my sheep and my cattle, so I'm going that way. And then Abraham says, okay, then I'll go this way. Well, Lot would have never been, he, he would have, and by the way, he ends up moving into Sodom late, later on. Lot would have never moved into Sodom if he hadn't seen, as the Bible says, those well-watered plains around the Jordan River. Same sort of thing happened to David in the Bible. David would have never committed adultery with someone who wasn't his wife if he, if he had seen the tragic consequences that would have come. What were those consequences? Well, the Bible specifically mentions at least one. Number one, the baby that was born to Bathsheba dies. Uh, one of David's brave soldiers by the name of Uriah was murdered. And the Bible also says that David's daughter Tamar was raped. Not to mention all the other issues. God said that the sword would not depart David's house. So several of other David's sons ended up dying, like Absalom, for example. If David had seen all of the consequences that would happen to him and his family, he would have never committed adultery. So do you see the problem? There's bait. Satan, this world, and your indwelling sin puts the bait out there to deceive you, to make the temptation look good. So the bait keeps us from seeing the consequences of sin. And One, one thing that's going to help you, by the way, here's a practical thing I've learned, okay? Listen, one of the things that will help you is uh, not to sin is to think about the consequences that come as a result of sin. Many years ago, someone encouraged me to write the consequences of immorality. I wanted to be faithful to my wife. Uh, by God's grace, I, I have been on outward. Outwardly speaking, I have been, only by God's grace. And so I was encouraged to write, well, what would happen if I was unfaithful to my wife and, and I was immoral? What, what are the consequences that could come as a result of that? And I ended up with at least 25, and I'm not going to share all 25 with you, but I'm, I'm just doing this as an example. You need to do this, because James is saying we are deceived. What we need to do is we need to rip the bait off the hook to reveal the bare hook. We need to take the cheese off the trap to reveal the trap for what it really is. Looking at the consequences will help you do that. So here's just some things I wrote. Number one. And David said this in Psalm 51, you grieve the Lord. When you sin, you are sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. You're displeasing the one whose opinion matters most in this world. Number two, there's loss of reward and commendation from God. The Bible says we'll all stand before God at Judgment Day. Number three, try to imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus Christ and seeing him, giving an account of why you sinned. Number four, facing God's chastening. The Bible says that God chastens his, all the sons and children whom he loves. He does that because he loves us. He doesn't get it, let us get away with our sin. 
Next, uh, think about the untold hurt that would come to my best friend, who is my loyal wife, if I sinned against her with my unfaithfulness. Next, I would also be sinning against my children. I would also bring shame to my church family. In this case, it's you. I would be sinning against you. There's possible diseases that come from immorality. I bring shame upon myself. Uh, Those are just some of the 25 things that are consequences as a result of immorality. And, And I must say those things are helpful Horrible to think about, but helpful to, to rip the bait off the hook, to take the cheese off the trap. So it reveals the ugliness of, for what it really is. So I encourage you, don't look at the bait. Your indwelling sin, this world and Satan, they're going to they're gonna try to make sin look good. But I remind you, as Moses said in the book of Hebrews, that sin is only pleasurable for a season only pleasurable for a season. So don't look at the bait. Instead, you look to Christ, who is the author and finisher of your faith. And when he looks beautiful, as he really is, then the sin looks ugly for what it really is. So here's the steps, all right? What's number one? You have desire. The desire leads to deception. And then if you look at verse 15, the next step in temptation is disobedience. Look at verse 15. It says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the third step here is, really, it's design. We're we're planning. The planning stage of, of, of the sin, if you will. And when plans start to be made to fulfill that desire, then what we we have justified that in our minds. And so this stage here is involving our will. Uh, it's, it's a conscious decision. I'm going to pursue that lust until I satisfy this lust, this desire. And because the will's involved here, this is the stage where the most guilt lies. Because we, we all have God-given desires. We all are going to experience temptations. What do you do with those temptations? Tempta- the Bible says these temptations are common to man but when you read first corinthians 10 13 god says he will provide a way of escape he's going to enable you to endure through that temptation you don't have to give in so here's where the most guilt lies so what's been longed for then is rationalized we're, we're consciously pursuing this as a matter of choice It's no longer just a desire. You're saying, how am I going to fulfill this desire? And so what's the solution? If you start thinking this way, how are you going to deal with this? What's the solution? Well, Jesus put it this way. He said, you radically amputate it. You radically amputate it. Now, he didn't mean literally, because he talks about plucking out your eye, cutting off your arm. He didn't mean literally do that. Because you, you're still going to sin even if you don't have eyeballs, right? That wasn't the point. But Jesus is saying, you, 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 deal, you deal with it however you need to deal with it so that you don't sin. Radical amputation. It's like gangrene, right? You get an infection in your body, one of the limbs of your body. How, how do they deal with that? 
you amputate the limb, you cut off the leg, you cut off the arm. Because if you don't, you say, well, that's radical. But if you don't, what happens? The gangrene will eventually kill you. But if you get rid of it soon enough, then you can protect the body. That's what Jesus says to do. You eliminate the source. Go to the source. Kill the source. So we have the steps of temptation. Number one is desire. Then we lead to deception. Number three is disobedience. And what's the end result? Thinking of the end result will help you as well. God says the end result in verse 15 is death. The disobedience leads to death. And this is more than just a physical death, by the way. God said that would be the case all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Read, read Genesis. God says, hey, don't sin against me. Sin will lead to death. You shall surely die, God says. So disobedience gives birth to death. Now, it might take years for that sin to mature, but when it does, the result is surely death. And so if we will only believe God's word and and see this final tragedy here, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be encouraged to not yield to temptation. And so whenever you're faced with temptation, what you have to do is Get your eyes off the bait. Get your eyes off uh, what, what looks supposedly good on the outside and see the consequences. See the end result is death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. More than physical death there, it's also a spiritual death. So when Adam and Eve sinned, they, though they were made in God's image, that the image was marred. They became sinners. They immediately, body-wise, physically started dying, but they were immediately spiritually dead. So that's the end result, death. So the four steps we go from desire, deception, disobedience, end result is death. So what's the solution? <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about some good news, because that's, that's kind of bad news, isn't it? Well, there is no good news without bad news, all right? So we've seen the bad news. What's the solution for temptation? Well, number one, it's close fellowship with God. The closer you get to God, the better He looks, the more appealing He is, the more you crave and long His fellowship and His presence, the less you will want to be with your sin. That's the idea here in verse 17. Verse 17 is the idea, know the goodness of God, James says, because look at, look at verse 17, he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Get close to God. Get close to God. You see, one of the enemy's tricks is to convince us that our Heavenly Father is somehow holding out on us. He's not really good Your heavenly Father has told you, don't go and do that because He doesn't really love you. It's like like the deception that we might have or had with our parents. Our parents say, hey, you're not allowed to go there. You're not allowed to do that. And uh, we, in our sinful, fleshly way, respond negatively in rebellion against our parents and say, well, oh, my parents just, they don't like me having fun. No, that's, that's not why our parents did that. They, they did it because they love us. They know 
probably by experience, that's a bad thing, now stay away from that. But we kind of translate that over to our, to our Heavenly Father and think He's holding out on us. He doesn't really want what's best for us. And so the goodness of God is a great barrier against yielding to temptation. What is God like? The Bible clearly says God is good and we do not need any other person or thing to meet our needs. He's sufficient. And so once we start then to doubt God's goodness and somehow think He doesn't love us, He doesn't want what's best for us, then you know what you're going to do? You're going you're to go looking for other stuff. You're going you're gonna to look uh, to the attractions that Satan is trying to deceive you with. By the way, do you know how to defeat sin? You've heard me say this before. You defeat sin with superior pleasure. Defeat sin with superior pleasure. Find something that is of greater value than whatever this other thing is you're being attracted to. Look at the superior pleasure. And and in this case, James is giving us several superior pleasures to think about. Have a look at the text, because the first thing that James says is that God gives only good gifts. That's the first superior pleasure that James is drawing our attention to. He's not saying here, you know, sin is ugly, sin is not pleasurable. No, he's saying, look at God. Look at God. God gives only good gifts. Every good in this world comes from God. And so if it did not come from God, then it is not good. If it comes from God, it must be good. I'll give you an example. Even the things that uh, you, you might think, well, that doesn't seem so good. Is that from God? Well, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in the flesh, according to Corinthians chapter 12. In fact, Paul prayed three times God would remove that thorn in the flesh, and some would say, uh, no, that's not good. That, that's bad. <laughs> well, that's not what Paul thought. That's not what God thought. This thorn in the flesh was something that was afflicting his his body in some way, and he was given that by God, and it seemed to be a very strange gift. But Paul recognized it was actually a blessing. It was something that was good. It was humbling him, showing his weakness so that God's strength would be magnified. Number two, the second superior pleasure that James is pointing out here is that the way that God gives is also good. Not only is God good himself, and He only gives good gifts, but the way he does it is really cool. It's possible for someone to give us a gift in a manner that doesn't seem very loving, right? Ever happened to you? Ever happened to you? Somebody gives you a gift and you thought, man, I'm not convinced that that person was loving me in giving me that gift, (laughs) right? I don't know. You you think about it, whatever that might be. You know, somebody might think... uh, People have been offended when I've given them gifts before. And I was just trying to be loving. And I thought, man, that's kind of strange, trying to love them. But they were offended. So maybe you've been that way at some point in your life. Maybe it was me that, in the way I did it. But the way God gives is always good. He always gives gifts in a loving way. And so when God gives us a blessing, He's doing it in a loving manner. A third superior pleasure that James mentions here is he, that God gives not just once, but God's doing it constantly. Constantly. Constantly giving. Every good and 
Every perfect gift's from above. It's continually coming down from the Father. Continually. Every day of our lives. Even the, just think about it, just, just the next breath you breathe is another blessing and gift from God. Uh, the, the, being able to see His beautiful creation, to enjoy His Word, to enjoy friendships and family, to enjoy the taste of food, to, to enjoy the touching all those things, and much, much more are the blessings of God constantly given to us. A fourth superior pleasure is God says He doesn't change. He's consistent. He, he's not variation, as verse 17 says. There's no shadow here. There's no variation. He's always the same. Yesterday, today, forever. Totally faithful. God doesn't have mood swings. God doesn't have bad hair days. <laughs> God is not never under the weather. It, always the same. That's a beautiful, superior pleasure. Well, there's another solution to our temptation mentioned here in verse 18, and it's, here it is. It's, it's a constant response to God's Word. So we need to have this close fellowship with God. Getting close to God will... We'll, we'll, then we'll, we'll see the deception of temptation. Won't, won't desire it when you get close to God. But there also needs to be a constant response to God's Word because that's how you get to have this close fellowship with God. Now look at verse 18. Because it says, Of His own will He brought us forth. How did this happen? How did He bring us forth? By the Word of truth. And it, it needs to have a result. There's a response to this word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And so because of the ability of sin to mask itself, to deceive us, uh, allure might appear harmless, might appear innocent to our eyes, but in reality it has awful consequences. And so let's think about some practical application here. All right, What are some lures... That this world and your indwelling sin and Satan are going to dangle before you. What, what's going to be deceptive to a lot of people? Well, Scripture talks about at least five things I want to point out. Number one, beware of the lure of success. Beware of the lure of success. Somebody told me a long time ago when I was uh, in seminary, there's... Uh, Three things you need to watch out for, and they all had the letter G. Gold, glory, and girls. Those are three big temptations, lures, that are going to be set before you. The idea of, well, you know what girls are. You know what gold is. But glory, success. We want A lot of people want to feel important. And that could be a huge success. Uh, success can be a huge temptation to, to sin. Beware of it. Pride, pride of life. First uh, John two, verses fifteen to seventy talks about the three main kinds of of temptations. One of those is the pride of life. We, we desire success. We want people to look at us so we can feel important. Number two, there's the lure of comfort. Comfort. We want to be comfortable. We don't. We don't enjoy being uncomfortable. We want to be comfortable. Many people have been caught in sins of various kinds because they've allowed themselves to nurture a lie. 
they, they nurture this, this lie that I deserve more. Right? Well, I won't go into details on that, but a third one, third lure is a, there's a belief that there's no evil within us. <laughs> Some people say that we're all good. We all have this spark of God within us. We're all good people. There's no bad people. Just bad events and circumstances and things around them. Really? Many people want to believe that human beings are essentially good. What's the reality, though? The reality is the forces in us are opposed to God. We, The Bible puts it this way. We're at enmity with God. We need to be reconciled to God. Dwelling sin opposes God. It hides us from God. It disobeys God. And so the Bible teaches that human beings have the capacity for evil. We're, we're born with that. You don't have to teach a baby to sin, to be naughty. Babies are inherently that way. They are born with this capacity for evil within them. I mean, think about this. How else can someone, how can anybody explain something like the Holocaust? How can anybody explain what ISIL is doing to all of these hundreds of Christians that are being kidnapped? And these journalists. People who aren't even a part of the war. By the way, ISIL. In case you don't know what that, that that's referring to the Islamic State, these these radical uh, Muslims who are who are trying to make themselves their own little place in the world, their own little government, where they're actually following the Quran. How, how can that happen? How can guys like Hitler do what he did in the Holocaust, or guys like a, a Stalin during you know World War II and after World War II, the millions and millions of his own people whom he murdered? How do you explain that if it's not for resident evil? And so if we don't understand the grave danger we're in, then how are you going to know what, how to get out of that? How are you going to know what the solution is? A fourth lure is the belief that sin's not really sin. Some people can't define sin. Well, the Bible describes sin as a transgression of God's law. That's how the Bible describes it. So sin is not really sin, some people would say. And if it's not really sin, then you don't need to take it seriously. But one of the ways that this is being done today is is we no longer call sin, sin. We've we've given sin different titles and different names, and now sin is a disease. We've done this in many ways. Maybe some Christians are guilty of this sort of thing. I'll give you one example. The Bible calls it drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin, but we've now labeled it an ism. It's now alcoholism, right? So it's it's no longer a sin. It's 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 now a disease, and you know they need drugs, they need help, or something, right? So we excuse it. You know, we excuse sin by all sorts of means. We 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 label it. It's a DNA problem. It's a gene problem. You know, people are saying that homosexuality is not a sin. It's something that you're born with. Homosexuality is, is the way that you're made, and, and, and people are born a homosexual. And so they're trying to find this, the DNA or the gene for homosexuality. So it's not that person's fault. That's the way they were born. Right? No longer a choice. And if the, By the way, if there's no choice, there's no solution. 
for the sin either. So the reality is we do have a choice. God says we have a choice. It is our choice, and we need to recognize that sin is serious. Since we're going to sin, the crucial issue then is how are we going to respond when we do sin? Well, some just give up. They just give up. They say, what's the point? I'm going to sin. I've sinned in the past. I'm going to do it in the future. I'm not even going to try. Well, Proverbs says that the just man falls seven times, but he gets back up. Well, some just ignore their sin. You know, it's, it's the proverbial sweeping the dust under the rug, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Some blame God like James was talking about. Blame God or, or you know, Satan made me do it or my friends made me do it or, you know, it's the advertisement that made me do it or whatever. It was that beautiful woman. I just couldn't help myself. Or, you know, they got to blame someone else, something else. Well, some come before God, confess their sin, can forsake their sin, and then and then uh, and pray for the Holy Spirit to work His grace in them. That's the proper response. Do what David did after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Here's here was David's response in Psalm fifty-one, verse two. He says, "Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin." Verse ten: Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David confesses his sin. He recognizes, I've sinned against God. He forsakes his sin and asks God to do the work in him that he could never do. So that's the proper response. But there's a fifth lure. It's the desire to accuse God of evil intent. Just just like James is talking about here, we can be tempted to accuse God, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. You know, God, it's... You know, it's your fault because you gave me that woman. We do the same. Blame God. And so in verse 16, James clearly teaches us the need here for spiritual discernment. He says, don't be deceived. You see that in verse 16? Don't be deceived. It's not God's fault. And so such discernment allows us to distinguish between trials and temptation. God gives the trials. That's verses 2 through 12. But there's a difference between trials and temptation. But it also prevents us from questioning the character of God. If we're not deceived, we're not going to blame God. We're not going to question His character. We're not going to lay blame on Him. So our tendency is to do what Job did. Job had a lot of suffering, didn't he? And Job asked many, many times, Why? 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 We might be tempted to do the same, but God wants us not to know the why question. He wants us to know the what, the who. So God showed Job himself. We've got to trust in him just as Job came to do. But what do you believe about God? Right? What do you believe about God? You know, what Job believed about God made all the difference in his life. What David believed about God made a huge difference in his life. I and mean, when you're confronted by misfortune, trials, temptations, what do you believe about God? Because belief is going to cause you to, to act in the right way. Well, there's at least six possible conclusions. You can, things you can believe about God. Number one, you can say, well, hey, God doesn't exist. <laughs> That's what some people say, right? God doesn't exist, so it doesn't really matter what I do. Well, that's a nice conclusion. It's not true. And some say that God is evil. God's evil, so, you know, I'm just going to be evil. Some would say, hey, 
God is powerless. He's, he's wimpy. He can't, he can't do anything to help me. Well, some say that God does not care. God doesn't really love me. Well, none of those four options are worthy of worship, are they? That that kind of a God is wimpy, powerless, He's not good, He's not great, He's not worthy to be worshipped and adored. And so we usually choose to believe that, some choose to believe that God is just of no consequence. Well, that's not a good option, so what's the right conclusion? Well, the right thing is to believe that God is always good and always great. You've probably heard that from quieting a noisy soul. God is always good. God is always great. Those are the the truths that you need to meditate on that will cause you to not only believe the right thing, but when you believe the right thing, you're not going to you're not going to have the wrong desires. You're not going to be deceived by that temptation. You're, and you will not find the end result of death. If you've never heard of the stabilizing truths for noisy souls, uh, I'm happy to give those to you, but I have them on my desk. I constantly look at those things, try to meditate on the right content, believe the right thing about God to protect me from temptation. So let me just quickly share these with you. God is always good. He's always great. And as you think about God's goodness, what, what does that look like? Well, it'll look like this, that God will always meet my genuine needs. You have needs, everybody does. God's promised to meet those. God's always going to forgive your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Number three, God's always up to something good in my life. He's always up to something good in your life. Everything He does is for His glory and your good. Four, God will always love you personally. He knows you intimately. He made you. Next, God will always give you the grace that you need. Those are just some of the ways we see in Scripture that God is good. But what do we see in the Scriptures of how God is great? Number one, that God's always in control. He's in control of all things. He reigns supreme. That's what sovereignty is. He is sovereign over all of His creation. The weather, your people, animals, the stars, the planets, all those things are in His sovereign control. Number two, God's always present. He's present with you wherever you go. He said in Psalm 139, hey, you can even go make your your bed in hell and God is there. There is nowhere you can go where God is not. That shows His greatness. Number three, God's always the same. He's always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, Scripture says. Number four, God's always trustworthy. When He says something, He will accomplish it. We've seen Him accomplish His purposes in the first coming of Christ. All those Bible prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ, well, we know that the second coming will also be fulfilled in Christ. God never lies. He's great and can keep His word. Next, we see that God's always wise in what He does. It's perfect wisdom. You can see the end from the beginning. It's all the same to Him. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the first, the last, and everything in between. Got a plan, he's in control of that plan, and he's accomplishing that plan. And so there's no reason why a Christian then has to yield to temptation. 
God brings the trial. You don't blame God. If you give in, it's your fault. But you don't have to give in. Again, if you've never memorized 1 Corinthians 10, 13, do so, please. There is no temptation that is common to man. It's all common. We all experience the same temptations. But God says, I'm going to provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So you've got to learn to resist the deadly force. Or if you don't, you'll never become the spiritually mature Christian that James is, is pointing us to here. So the theme, I guess you could say the theme, main idea is that believe the right things about God in order to resist temptation. Believe the right things about God in order to resist the temptation. Right belief. Belief is the issue here, my friends. What are you believing in? Do you, do you know the God of the Scriptures as He has revealed Himself to be? That's, that's your challenge for this week. Okay, That's the challenge for the rest of your life, to meditate on an accurate God, the way He has revealed Himself, so that we would be able to resist temptation and be spiritually mature.